Hi, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Kirk. And this is Track Walking. Today. Today. We have Kirk Barber, who we know from One Lap. Um, Kirk does Toyota stuff. And the, the, the fun thing about Kirk, I know. But the fun thing about Kirk is like when he's at One Lap, he's at work. And so the ultimate work-life balance with that. Kirk, introduce yourself and then uh, we'll talk about stuff. Yes. So my name is Kirk and uh, I am in Kentucky now. I live in Kentucky now, but uh, I've been racing pretty much my whole life. It started when I was uh, seven years old in uh, oval track, circle track stuff, only turning left. Uh, Grew up and made it to the real world and then started turning right for racing. So there was a big Mm. transition there and turning left and right. Mm. Uh, Yeah. So which is where one lap comes in and meeting you guys too. Uh, But yeah, there's, uh, I don't know, lots of racing stories to tell with you guys see so you and you, uh, you t- could have done a great intro of uh mustache enthusiasts and uh miata apparel lover do you know what this hat is right it's a, it's a hat I, with I a don't. mustache Kirk has on. a hat on with a mustache on it what's it what is it yeah for all the people that can't see us on video uh this is the lexington legends hat so it's a uh i believe double a team i actually don't know what league they play in but that's a local baseball thing. team here in lexington kentucky so uh, they have a yeah their, their their team mascot is legends therefore the logo is a mustache they do have lots of cool logos though but so i wanted to throw something on that was non-racing in addition to my slow miata t-shirt from several years ago that's from- still one of my favorite t-shirts I I was pretty proud of that very simple design. <laughs> so wait, uh, just real quick because I'm I'm curious. So the mascot for the legends is it just like a giant dude in a giant mustache outfit like walking around? They it's I don't know maybe it's like a I don't know person like a man okay. and uh-huh. the head is a big baseball with a big mustache. <laughs> So the mascot couldn't gotcha. just be a mustache. So I guess it's a walking mustache, more or less. Yeah, because a it's baseball great. with a mustache makes way more sense than just a mustache. With a mustache. It's reasonable yeah. from a marketing standpoint, yeah. Sure. <laughs> so when we were t- talking to Kirk prior to this, uh, the one thing we learned is that uh, the first rule of Toyota Club is don't talk about Toyota Club. So because Kirk works on things that are way too cool to talk about publicly, we're going we're gonna to go back in time and talk about Young Kirk. How did you start racing at seven? I, so yeah, you're right. We're, we're going to skip current day and go back in time. Yeah, we're uh, going to go back in time. Which, so I, which I just want to say sucks because there's a lot of cool stuff you're doing. Yeah, but if we do on. this right, we will gain the trust of Toyota car- corporate and then they'll give us a green light to the next time we interview Kirk. They'll just be like, talk about anything. It's fine. I don't think that's how this works. <laughs> I feel like they're already quivering listening. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll start in the past and we'll see where we end up in today. But uh, So yeah, I started in quarter midgets. Um, like I said, just turning left on oval track stuff. Quarter midgets are like quarter scale midget cars. Um, I don't know, midgets, I guess, are probably well known, not well known, but at least people know what they are in this group, in this audience. Yeah. Big, um, big kind of like a go kart, but with a roll cage. Well, giant quarter midget is. Yeah. Yeah. Giant, yeah. Giant wing basement cars, wing, winged version of them. So there's wingless and wing versions of them. But um, so my parents, uh, my dad grew up racing dirt bikes and wanted to 
uh, my brother and I had to get into that as well. My mom said, absolutely not. Had to have a roll cage. So dirt bikes were out, go-karts were out. We ended up in quarter midgets. Uh, and it was great. We ran those for several years, moved up to mini sprints, micro sprints, um, which is like a half size sprint car. So that one did have a wing on top. Uh, they use 600 CC motorcycle engines, usually Hondas probably ringing a bell with you there. stuff. no, I've, I've watched them run. They, they used to run them at the dirt track by us and they were phenomenal. They were so fast and they were whatever running at 15,000 RPMs and they were, they were terrifyingly awesome. They were one of those cars where it was like, you immediately look at you at, at them running and you're like, I want one of those. I really want one of those. Yeah, there's um, two there's two RPMs in those cars, and it's idle and rev, redline, just constantly on the rev limiter. Yeah, they're horrifying. You know, don't they have like the shifter on the outside of the car or something bizarre like that? Right. Uh, yeah. So it it it's kind of inside, but the engine shares space with your legs in those cars. So you're like you sit in the middle of the car, but the engine is like halfway into your leg base. Your so, legs are like bending to the right and so, kind of back around to the foot pedals. So your mom is like, you know what's gonna be safer than bikes? Let's strap you to a hurtling piece of metal <laughs> and straddling an engine. That's totally safer. Yes. And it's not like anyone doesn't get hurt in full roll cage racing like we were doing it still happens for sure but oh, yeah. maybe the odds are better it's a, what it's ends a perception up, thing whatever I, whatever you can convince your mom to do is the right thing to do i get it right what ends up ironic is my mom ends up in a full career in a working for a motor cross gear and apparel company so would have had a great in in you know racing dirt bikes yeah i'm gonna ask but, you about that later because that's another story that's awesome yeah, another Kirk story. So, and so, this is uh, all dirt track stuff. So, the quarter midgets were pavement uh, with a little bit of the dirt in the quarter midgets, and then the mini sprints uh, were all dirt, full dirt for those. Uh, and that took me to about the time I was thirteen or fourteen, um, which then enter, enters in my brother in the story. So, my brother's two years older than me, Chase Chase Barber. Um, he was a much better driver than I was. Uh, and I was a pretty good wrench. And so he was ready to move up to the next level of cars, which would be full-size midgets at that point. Um, and so I basically, we sold off my stuff. We just focused on him and that's what got me into like wrenching on cars and engineering. Uh, so I traveled the country with him from the time I was like 14 till pretty much through college. And uh, I graduated when I was 20, ooh, I think now 22, 23. So traveled you- the country for a long time with him. That got me out from behind the steering wheel and then behind the wrenches instead, which I really enjoy. That was a lot of fun. As, I was about to say, you said that we sold your stuff and being that you were 14, like, were you like, yeah, totally. Let's sell my crap and let's focus on you, older brother. That, right. At that age, that, yeah, that at that age, it, was, it wasn't like that type of conversation. Looking back, I like to think that's how it went, but um, yeah, we tried. So I, I would travel with my mom to my races with the mini sprint. My dad would go with my brother to the midget races. Um, I think we only did that three or four times and it was not successful at all. Um, so it was kind of like something had to change. Something was going to give. Um, and I didn't like the pressure and stress of driving. Like I, I liked being crucial to like important to the, the success, but not being in the limelight. So being able to sit behind the wrenches and sit in the, in the pits, make adjustments on the car and, and, you know, get him what he needed to go be successful. I liked that. And then letting him go and, and do his thing. So, Interesting. Um, and we had a great relationship too. And like getting the feedback from the car, right. Cause mm-hmm. dirt racing, it's one thing I wanted to touch on. was like dirt racing is like the track changes constantly. 
like as the sun sets, the moisture comes back in the tracks, so like the track will change from wet to dry, sometimes back to wet. So you always got to be on top of it. You got to take feedback from your driver on what they're feeling, you know, what you're seeing in the track, and then kind of work with them on a solution to be able to, you know, get them the best thing they need. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, taught me a lot for sure about car setup and engineering and that stuff. I was going to ask you how much setup do you have on the the mini sprints? I know I've talked to some some about the quarter midgets and the like changing individual corners to do stuff. Yeah, on the mini sprints and and pretty much quarter midgets, mini sprint midgets, sprint cars, they're they're a lot all similar in that they've pretty much got shocks and springs you can change independently on the corners, um, which is very common. Um, tire pressures are huge. And a lot of this stuff you'll notice like carries over to what I do now with one lap in road race cars and turning left and right. Um, and in the wing cars too, you've got the top wing, you can adjust to, you know, gain more traction or, or, you know, move weight, arrow weight, you know, rearward or forward from there. Um, and then too, is like gear ratio too. We could change gear ratios depending on, you know, the track was dry or slick, um, or wet or wet or dry. And then whether you wanted the car to like tack out at the end of the straightaway or not, effectively you could change gear ratio and take horsepower away from the car too. So have you been like a notebook guy since you were like 12? Is that what you're telling me? I've had to convert. I used to be able to, it's probably part of growing up, getting old, but I used to like basically have it all in the head. And then I would notice like, you'd go back to a racetrack six months later and you're just like, ah, I don't remember what spring we started with on the left front. And you, you know, you think you know it and you never do. So, um, taking notes became a thing early, pretty early on. Yeah, I can't. I can't remember anything. And yeah. and oftentimes what I remember now is I remember, I, I better remember the things that didn't work than the things that do work. Because the things that didn't work, it's like, oh, let's absolutely not do that again. And like it carries more weight than the things that did for some reason. And in a sense that, I don't know, that still works, right? Yeah, there was a lot of um, experimenting, which is something I also do now, like finding the extremes of, uh, you know, anytime you get a track data, go super soft and then super stiff and then soft in the front and stiff in the rear and crazy high tire pressures and all that. And just learning, like you said, kind of learning that, I don't know, the the, the roadmap or the Rolodex of changes, depending on what you're feeling too. Yeah. And I think that's big, not only for car setup, but also too for driver field. The driver can communicate back, you know, what they're feeling, what they think a change needs to be. I was going to ask how open that community is in sharing that stuff. Is it all like super secret? Yes. And, and still everyone will give you an answer, which is crazy. Yes. Yeah. Like, Hey, what, you know, what gear you're running here, what tire pressure, or, or, you know, what's your left front shock or whatever. And they'll always give you an answer. 75% of the time, it's not the right answer. <laughs> and it's usually the opposite. So you, you always take what you can with a grain of salt, but you find, you know, same thing you do in, you know, club racing or road racing, you find the, find the people you trust. Cause I found that too with one lap. I think you guys have been talking about that lately. It's like the competition has been, has been more fierce the last couple of years with one lap and people have not been wanting to share as much, but uh, yeah, which I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I can, I can bemoan, you know, aspects of the one lap competition that, um, you know, aren't what it used to be sort of thing, but yeah, it's the part of what, you know, hooked me was the camaraderie and like the whole Toyota team. Like, yeah, like here's, here's what you want to do on a paved oval because guess what? I've never done it. <laughs> I need help. And I'm always nervous about, I get it. I supporting, get it. right? Like 
this is what I would do. And and I'm a hundred percent honest with people when they come ask me a a question at the track, it's like, well, here's what I'm doing, but I'm always that way with like alignments. People ask me about car setup. It's like, well, I like a super free car. Like I want to chase a car. And so I kind of tell people, here's what I'm running. But just a caveat to that, it's like, I like things this way. So maybe come back a little bit from there or something, but because I, the same thing is like, I never know, like I was, you know, helping you with tire pressures on a noble. It's like, well, I don't know, you know, if your car is going to be, Loose or tight, and bringing in some older terms now instead of understeer and oversteer. Loose or tight, pushing, right. pushing like a dump I truck. It. I get it. Yeah, I mean, I I remember I've you've you've been on my speed dial a couple times in uh, old GLTC days when it'd be like, hey, I have no idea what to do here, <laughs> and I, I think we've learned each other enough that you can like you can just tell me, well, here's here's what I would do, and you can trust that. I may or may not do that, <laughs> but it's right. like, I just need a direction here. And I think that's important too, right? Cause you go seek out people and ask them questions. And then you kind of, from there gain your own understanding of what you think you need, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's something that I've always appreciated about you, especially in the one lap environment, because like you, there aren't do overs in the one lap and conditions are what they are. The car is what it is. Like, you just have to go and you guys especially in like foul weather conditions you've never been afraid to like throw everything at the wall and just see what happens so right um you know because you've been building this mental rolodex for decades uh because we're getting old now it's like <laughs> when you go into like a super wet mph and you're running through ponds and lakes and things like that you'll be like well we're gonna do sway bars we're gonna do rebound we're gonna do arrow and we're going to do uh rake and uh you know we'll just see see how it goes but you say that but you you know pretty sure where it's gonna go right generally and it's like mixing up the cocktail, right? A little bit of this and a little bit of that. And and ultimately what you're shooting for is to give what I used to shoot for when I was turning wrenches for my brother is to give him the closest car to neutral that I can. True. And now when I'm driving, that's kind of the same target, but rather than like leaving arrow where it is and just adding rebound or just softening whatever compression or something like, okay, well maybe we don't take that to an extreme, but we, we, you know, we take that to the middle and we take our arrow to the middle too. And that kind of gives us better chance of, you know, ending up in the middle too. But yeah, uh, Yeah, it's kind of like honing down. Like once you, once you know the extremes, like to the outside, when you make like giant sweeping changes, it's not really, they, they may be large changes, but they're not stabs in the dark either. You know, you know, in wet weather conditions, you want the load to transfer more. You know you can run more arrow without the drag penalty because you're going to be going slower. You like there are certain things you know that you can just change. So it may look super drastic from the outside, but really it's it's pretty fine tooth. You largely know where you're going to end up. It tries to be calculated. That's something I talked to Seth about too. Is like we we are all engineers, so we're very data driven and analytical. Like, I did this thing and I achieved this result. Okay, cool. Document that. 
Yep. And then you should be able to then later, you know, do this thing and achieve this same result. And then things are good. It's when, it's when you do a thing and you get a different result that things go crazy. I think they call that science then instead of engineering. But yeah. Yeah. The, about right. I remember seeing a post or something. It's the scientific med- method is literally fuck around and find out <laughs> like this. And then you document and then you change and then you fuck around some more. <laughs> yeah. That's your scientific and it's, method. Back to what you're saying too, Hollis, I think is Andy Hollis is big about like at a track day, like go to extremes, like find your extremes to know what your car is capable of. Or we do this all the time on, you know, cars that we have when you change to a new shock package or you change to a new tire or you've got a new brake or something like you have to find what one end is and what the other end is. And, and, and it gets really hard too. If you like change coilovers and change arrow and change tires, now you have tons of variables that you have to go, okay, I'm going to go max soft here, max arrow there and try that and then come in and make another change and try that again. It just makes it like, on your matrix, talk engineering terms. Now on your matrix, you've got many more variables <laughs> that you have to like fill in, like like a tuning table, right? Like yep. what are those values in each one of those? Like yep. you got so. you've got six 3D tables and you're looking at how all of them interact with each other. Let's yes. just make one seven D table, Scott. <laughs> Let's do it like that. It, I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think tables work like that. <laughs> in engineering they do. We can make we can as many dimensions as we want, right? Yes. Keep that. I'm a visual guy, though. It's like I need to. No, two of us on this have, have engineering degree, Scott. I, so. get, I get it. <laughs> I'm a visual guy. Then, right. then just become a phone guy and just call someone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, I have a. You, you said you traveled with your brother racing all around the country for like years, right? What. So a lot of us are amateur racers and we go to our home tracks and we might go to a track that's like six hours away. And that's a big trip. What is it like going all over the country racing? It's when you going to get into another story now, when you do it with your family, when you do it with your family, this is my experience. When I did it with my family, um, there was nothing better. I mean, it was, it was awesome. It was, that was life. That was what we knew it as. Um, both my parents worked pretty crazy jobs. Um, so like balancing a pretty crazy racing schedule. Cause we would do 75 shows a year, um, and in, in the warm months. So if you take that 75 shows in nine months, you're, you're running, running many different shows in a week. Uh, so you try wow. to like package all these like Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, sometimes Sunday nights too. Uh, but it would be a lot of like schedule management. I, in finishing my school, like high school, I would oftentimes fly, like I would, my brother and dad would take off. They would go drive out. I would fly out there on Friday, we'd race Saturday, Sunday. Then I would drive back so they could fly and go to work, things like that. So um, it's kind of doing what everyone does in their current racing, right? You do everything you can to make it work because that's what you want to do. Um, so you find a way to do it. Uh, but yeah, we, were, we would travel. We followed the USAC National Series mainly. Uh, and then we would, we would pick up some other races and some other series as well too. So, and then, uh, to the story part of things, when I, when it was time to grow up and go to college, I just kind of defaulted to motorsports. So I went to IUPY for motorsports engineering and two years into that, it's like, okay, now time to go, you know, get some experience and you go work on a professional race team. And then like very quickly things were not fun. It was like, okay, this is racing. Like I love racing. (laughs) 
but all of a sudden it was a job. It was work. Like you had to show up, you had to perform, you had to hit, you know, targets, milestones, same things we always hit too as a family, but like, I know the love wasn't there. Like it wasn't family racing anymore. It wasn't fun. It became work. And so a couple summers in that, I was like, okay, it's like, I learned, it's like, okay, I love racing with my family and with my friends, but when racing becomes a job, it wasn't fun anymore. So. Can you tell us who, like who those racing experiences were for? Cause that sounds cool. Yeah. So I had one summer. I was really cool. This is, so I, I finished high school in Indiana. This is just how cool Indiana is. And I do miss Indiana. Um, a neighbor two or three doors down from where my parents, uh, live still currently. And actually that neighbor's still there as well. Um, he was a, a truck driver and a pit crew guy for, for dry and Rhinebold racing at that time. And so it was like my senior year and he came over he's like hey man he's like i just need someone to run tires in the 500 he's like all you're gonna do is run back and forth from firestone from firestone garage out to pit lane i was like heck yeah like i'm in that's cool like (laughs) that's as cool as it gets and uh so it starts as easy as that and this is something i talk about too i my wife and i still call my wife is the same degree from the same school that i do too so we call back into the motorsports classes and it's one thing we always tell them it's like start somewhere like exploit every opportunity you have to get in get your foot in the door like go stock coolers go run tires go wash the rig like just show up at these places and just offer your support and your help so it starts as like simple as that um you know started doing my school i think i did like two or three summers um kind of running tires just doing grunt work you know go for work um and then i i was able to extend one of them into like mid ohio was the race right after the 500. So I was able to go to mid Ohio too, which is cool. Uh, and then that translated ultimately to a summer. I spent a summer with Sarah Fisher racing, um, kind of following the same people. Like you, you, I don't know, the, the people move around in racing and they, they take, they take you if they like you. So, um, so I spent a summer at Sarah Fisher racing and, uh, it wasn't a bad summer. And then after that started, probably like a six month or nine month process with Don Schumacher racing, shifting gears from IndyCar to drag racing. Uh, so Don Schumacher racing is, uh, you know, pretty much one of the, one of the leading top fuel dragster, top fuel funny car teams in NHRA. And, uh, through the school IUPUI, they wanted to basically try to re-engineer or, or add some engineering into some aerodynamics and some chassis modification stuff. Uh, so I was with another student. We worked, uh, on the chassis stuff. We had one of our professors work on the aero part of it. Um, but we, yeah, we spent a long time going through the iterations, like different iterations with the chassis doing the FEA, the finite element analysis, the chassis flex and all that, uh, ultimately ended up setting like a time and a speed record a couple weekends apart with the new chassis, the redesigned chassis. Um, so that was some of the coolest work that I'll ever be able to do was so those you know, are like, having, those are like, top fuel world records at the time. Right. Yeah. The 300 mile an hour ones. Yeah. So that was, uh, Corey McLenathan was the driver at that point in, at that time in the Fram, uh, DSR car. Okay. And, uh, that was probably around, I need to see, I've, I've, we also published an engineering paper too, from that work, um, which was super cool. So all the, all the information is out there cause it's all, you know, in a, in an engineering journal. Right. Um, that was another thing I always wanted to do was like be a published engineer. And it was like, got that one done pretty quick. It's like, well, that's cool. <laughs> Nailed it. But definitely though, to like, to, to know what you did had that direct result, that direct impact of, you know, time and speed records that stood for quite a while. Um, but they've broken now, but, um, uh, big shout out to Corey McClendon because he believed in us. He was, um, to kind of say this delicately, maybe towards the later part of his career. Uh, but he believed in, in, in the work that myself and the other student were doing, uh, 
so yeah, that was that was cool. He basically gave us a chance. We we had presented all of our findings to DSR and kind of shook hands, walked away, and then a couple weeks later, Corey actually called me. He's like, "Hey man, he's like, if we're to do one of these, you know, which one would we do?" And I was like, "Well, there's you know, one that's clearly the best. The numbers are the best on this one." And so they built that built that car. They had the chassis shop in house. DSR did so built that car and went out one weekend, like I think the first weekend out and set either the time record or the speed record, and then a couple weekends later went out and set the other record too. So. It was cool. That was really cool. And, uh, but maybe part of the end of the professional motorsports for me. So, so that was, it was awesome, but not fun. Is that? Yes. Yeah. Cause it's a lot of, it's like kind of what I described, it's like shake your hands, you know, thanks for your time. You know, appreciate your effort and you're gone just like that. So meanwhile, they're out doing super cool things. And the ultimate reason they're doing super cool things is not exactly known. So, um, but you never be, tried to you never tried to crawl back into a race team as more of a you know race engineering crew chief that was not something you ever thought of, you wanted to pursue that was that was the that was the goal like engineer okay. IndyCar engineer was the goal you know after high school that was what I wanted to shoot for and uh, the travel I mean you you kind of see it when you live in it too like when people bounce around in teams and sponsors pull out last minute and the team just has to fold up. And then these people are looking for a job in the middle of the season. Like we had professors in, in our college that were working still in industry and they would just come in. It's like, well, just got my phone call. Like I'm out, you know, I'm out for <laughs> out of that team, you know, I'm calling around and then, you know, the good ones would get picked back up. It was like a lot of travel, a lot of stress. It's like, well, there's gotta be a better way, which is where my wife comes into the picture. So, so she her, did- did, did she do anything fun race stuff that you can tell us about? Like your, she actually tried to do, and it was much more difficult, but she tried to do the same thing that we did with DSR with the funny cars. So we did that with the top fuel chassis. They had a very similar assignment with the funny cars after we got up with the top fuel chassis. Um, motorsports too. She did IndyCar tech inspection for a summer, which was awesome. Like that'd oh, be a cool, cool place to be because you're not tied to a team. You don't have that vulnerability of like sponsorship pullouts or cool. whatever team cutting, but you can go to, if I were to go into motorsports, this is a little top tip for kids that are coming through the engineering college ranks. Now, if you want to go into motorsports, I would target like a Delara or a CNR, like someone that's a supplier of parts or someone that's a support function like Firestone or, or, you know, one of those Honda, one of those, um, it just seems less vulnerable than what a race team would be. So now is this a point of constant, um, bickering with your wife? Uh, did she ever set any speed records or time records in the funny cars? No. Okay. <laughs> okay. I feel like my auto needs to break up and just jump ahead to the next section. But no. So the, the funny car chassis, have lots of slip joints in them where they actually like when they weld the chassis together, they don't weld like an upright tube, like a vertical tube to a horizontal tube. They're not welded like the vertical tube and the horizontal tube. Uh, there's like a larger tube that, that goes around the right. horizontal tube. Why? So, so all that crazy wobble that we see in the slow-mo shots is on purpose. All the 8,000 horsepower. Yeah, yeah. sent to the tires through sometimes non-welded joints, but it's by design. So, <laughs> like you actually want things to flex to be able to load it properly. Yeah, essentially, what they're doing with the chassis is like treating them like a spring. So you take all of the energy. That's, 
basically trying to shred the tires from the pavement and like wind the spring more or less. So that way you can slowly unwind the spring down. The, I say slowly, you do this over three seconds down the quarter mile, Jeez. thousand feet now. Um, so the difficulty they had was like the very first step in those types of engineering studies is like recreating current results. Like take the chassis you have, like we did this with the top fuel or with the, 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 yeah, top fuel dragster. It's like literally bend the chassis with a known force and then measure the displacement, like very simple stuff like that. And then you do that on in your CAD program and you should get identical results. And when that lines up, it's like, okay, cool. Like we have realistic models. Now we can go try and experiment things. But the difficulty they had with those funny car chassis is they could bend them. And it was like, there was no way in the CAD program to like apply, maybe there is now, cause this has been 10 years to apply some like slip ability in those joints. Like you can make a rigid joint very easy in CAD and like the FEA type thing. Uh, but to make like a slip joint with some changing coefficient of friction was very difficult. So mm-hmm. unfortunately it was not able to apply engineering to those at least from a chassis mechanical perspective. And, and I know this wasn't your project, but I, to me, it's like if the chassis is being used like that, how often do those need to be rebuilt? Because that in my mind creates a whole lot of just stress wear very quickly in those things. Yeah. Cyclic is the enemy. Like you have those loads where the, you know, the right. chassis winds up and then basically unwinds. But if you watch in slow-mo, like it's the most fascinating thing. You watch those top fuel cars in slow-mo. Cause like the chassis is just sitting there, like articulating yeah. at a crazy frequency that you can't hardly wrap your head around because like it's traveling at, you know, three seconds down the quarter mile and you can't like, you think to yourself like, okay, that thing's actually you know bucking pretty quick, but yeah, they do have some frequency, like a number of passes that they do. They do like a front half and then they do a back half. And then I think after a certain number, they just scrap them all together. But many consumables in top fuel cars for sure. Yeah. Including engines, right? Engines are just yes. rods, pistons, cranks, blocks, one, heads. One run, right? Yeah. A lot of it is. Yeah. Nutty. Which is where cool artists then get to make very cool stuff. Like some, I've got some flowers sitting around here from one of the artists. They make cool things from top fuel parts yeah you have stacks of rods and stuff right yes yep so they make lots of clocks out of those or business card holders and all sorts of cool stuff yeah i i think we've all probably seen that that post that goes around facebook from time to time like the uh the top fuel facts that are bend your brain about uh have the spark plugs basically eat themselves before you you reach the end and that the the nitro meth mixture almost becomes a solid. It's so compressed, like nutty right. stuff. Yeah. It's hard to apply any engineering to a lot of that stuff. It's just been so many years of like trying things, experimenting, right. And finding the extreme and then deciding like, okay, do we want to back down or do we just want to fix what broke and keep the crazy or whatever? Well, that's amazing. That's <laughs> That makes me like, I, I need another degree and it needs to be motorsports engineering and I need to go play with cool stuff. Yes. But you just told me I don't want to do that. So I'm very confused. I was about right to say, now. but then in my mind, it's that's a hell of a lot of money you're spending like per pass. <laughs> the amount of like marketing and sponsors and partnerships you would need just to be able to go professional racing right. is. They do a wonderful job of like, hospitality events at those races nhra races they yeah. they always wine and dine the sponsors really well obviously because the sponsors keep that all going but better get some yeah of it. 
got out of racing. So right about that same time when I was like not having fun in professional racing, but still in college is when I met my wife and, uh, she was on the mechanical engineering side, not motorsports engineering. And, uh, she was at that time, like, um, doing some diesel engine testing, uh, and some weapons testing as well. And I was like, yeah, I was like, well, that's cool stuff. Like weapons? it's not racing. Yeah. I was like, but I can do that. Like I'm okay with that stuff. And like keeping racing as a hobby. And so I added mechanical engineering. So I had motorsports engineering three quarters of the way through. And I was like, well, for one more year, I can do mechanical engineering and then have a lot more opportunity to pursue non-racing jobs. So that then was the pretty much the end of my professional racing and then going back to hobby racing. So is that the other advice you give to everybody is like, be more versatile with your engineering? Yes, definitely. The one, one thing that motorsports engineering students always have the question they have is like, do I need a mechanical engineering degree? It's like, well, you can certainly still pursue motorsports with mechanical. However, if you eat, sleep, live, and want to breathe motorsports, then pursue a motorsports engineering degree and, you know, go, go do that. Cause that's the you know best way to get you as close as you need to be to motorsports. So, um, but if you want to have that opportunity, at least from the school that I went to for one more year, you can have the both degrees and then, you know, the world's yours at that point, as far as what you want to do. Give yourself an escape hatch, maybe. Would yes, you, more life lessons. Give yourself a back road. Is your now wife, was she the same class as you? Or is she... I feel, I feel like you were forced to ask this or told to ask this by someone. She was one year ahead of me. And I can say I would not have finished engineering school if if I hadn't met her and she didn't help me along for sure. Oh, that's so romantic. That's cute. I'm just not... Yeah, I am not a super book person and... <laughs> showing up on, uh, uh, on time to class was difficult and studying for exams was difficult. I would much rather just be fixing things. And I would probably having not met her, I'd probably be a mechanic or a technician of some sort. Yeah. I mean, with, with kind of your family racing and the traveling and the basic logistics and the working and I, yeah, you didn't have to like, you never really like studied or like put together a thesis or a paper. Like it's just, well, let's try this, let's document it, and let's just go do stuff. It wasn't the whole, like, plan, prepare, vomit I, out information. Yeah, I think, and I would talk about this in school, and no one would ever, everyone would laugh at me. I always thought I had a harder time in motorsports engineering classes because I had some previous idea of how something should mm-hmm. work. Yeah. But then, like, you read the textbook, and the textbook says if you do this thing, you'll achieve this result. It's like, no, I've definitely done that before and haven't got that result. It was like, so then I had to like change my brain or like then figure out why there was a discrepancy where like a new student that hadn't had 15 years of motorsports experience could just be like, okay, yeah, the textbook says that, you know, I'm going to put that in my Rolodex and call it good. Do you, do you remember an example? I, one that always comes to mind is like go-karts and actually still tire pressures. I hate tire pressures. I know you guys talk about it on here too. Um, but like go-karts, like mechanical grip in tires, like in midgets and sprint cars, we try to lower the tire pressure to absorb energy basically and kind of gain traction. Sure. Um, with go-karts, it's a lot of times the opposite where you like blow the tire up, increase the tire pressure to gain grip. Like things like that are just really difficult to like, okay, now I'm working on a go-kart. I need more rear grip. I'm going to increase the tire pressure. It's like, no, like that's not what I've known for 10 years. Like, why am I doing that? And you go, you know, do it. You try it. Uh, Interesting. All right. I'll th- yeah. I'll think of 
No, I was think of something. But. I was just curious, yeah, because I remember you and I have had the um, tire pressure in the wet conversation several times about <laughs> about the, the that that very thing. Like, do you increase for better water siping, or do you decrease to allow more, allow it to build more heat, gain more grip, potentially, and uh, can kind of soften up the car at the same time? I, yeah, I'm, I'm recently converted and maybe recently open-minded, more open-minded about this okay. part of our testing we, we did for one lap was, is always been tire pressure and yeah. we don't always get a lot. I don't, I might've talked to you guys about this on one lap, but like having a wet track day, like people seem to always hate it, but it's so beneficial to it's learn so things good. between yeah, sway bars, car setup, tire pressure. Um, we, yeah, we had the opportunity to basically do runs back to back on low tire pressure and high tire pressure. And it was like, it was just cool to add that right to your, oh, to nice. your toolbox, to your Rolodex. Yeah. And, um, I've been a low tire pressure guy my entire life. Like if, if there's a grip issue, if there's some issue, okay, lower tire pressure and go from there. Yep. And, uh, yeah, more recently and even in dry conditions too, I must say in like autocross, I, this past year, one lap started tire pressure is very high like higher than I would be comfortable. Like I saw the sheet and I was like, I don't even want to set them this high and like pass them over to my co-driver. I was like, please set these tire pressures. So, um, like, yeah, like, like over hot pressure high or just yes. really yeah, for autocross. Yeah. Okay. That's and always again, recently converted. Like there's probably lifelong autocross people that are listening that are laughing, but it's like <laughs> my whole life though. Like I said, my whole life has been low tire pressures and like autocross has been, Interesting. I don't know. I'm changing. And I, and I learned tire pressures autocrossing. That was my first experience with really learning to do it and specifically autocrossing street tires um, where, you know, you're, you're trying to do things like not grind the tires into dust as well as, you know, looking for lap times and that sort of thing. And so me then going to, to track stuff, I had to completely relearn everything I thought I knew about tire pressures. And then I went to motorcycles and again, had to completely relearn everything. I So basically I've convinced myself that I know nothing in any given situation. And right. That's what it seems to be like, especially with tire pressures. Like the more you learn, the more you try, the less you're, the more you're like, I'm not certain about this. Like, but tires are, tires are funny. Yeah. Strange for sure. So you stopped doing professional motorsports, fell in love. I assume. And, <laughs> and uh, what, uh, what followed? That was what? getting out of college. We got married weapons after college. Uh, what, was that? Your, what was your wife doing with weapons? What was she? Yeah, can you tell us about like, that? Are we that talking that? about like cannons? That I don't know. I feel like I need to like call her over no, and talk about it. We're not. <laughs> it, 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 was, it was military related. Um, uh, it was so long ago now. Gun. I don't know anything I about it, but it was, it was yeah, it was um, scar type stuff um, and grenade launchers too. But um, there's a large naval base. She's from Southern Indiana. There's a large naval base in, in the Southern Indiana area. So um, I'm thinking out. in my geography here and going, but why? Wait, what? Yes, a it's a very interesting base? read. If you, yeah, if you go on, if you go Google, like, Crane, Crane is the naval base, but it's a very large navy base in the middle of southern Indiana, like near the river. Or just no, I think there's a, I think there's out. a couple ponds there. <laughs> cool. Right. That sounds sounds very strategic for yeah. 
reasons. I guess. Because nobody will expect it. Exactly. Southern Indiana. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was after, after we got out of school, um, she went right to Toyota after school. She was a year ahead of me. So she graduated in, um, 12. Yeah. 2012. And I was a year behind in 2013 and, uh, jumped down to Cincinnati and took a year to find out what I wanted to do. And then ultimately ended up at Toyota a year later. So, um, got married in 14, going through the sunset here now, Yeah, got married in 14, started working at Toyota right away. And, uh, been there ever since they moved us from uh we were in the cincinnati area at that time we moved down to the lexington kentucky area now so not too much farther south than we were and what was i guess it it seems like you were kind of getting away from the whole motorsports and it, it certainly seems like cars are just like in your blood so to speak like can't really get away from them did you go to toyota like were you interested in toyota because of what your now wife is was doing there or were they doing things that looked like this is really cool i want to go hang out with them right it was uh or both largely largely yes both but largely because it was a good place to work. And I, at that time, like my wife had been there two years and I started to meet some of the people like after work for drinks and, and dinners and weekends and that kind of stuff. Um, and started hanging out with them. It was like, well, I was like, I could go work for Toyota and hang out with these people through the day also. Um, and then definitely an added bonus, uh, that there was at that time, it was a lemons team, 24 hours of lemons, uh, that they had had that team for several years. And then the team has, you know, slowly just grown, and taking on other obstacles, a champ car and, and one lap too. So, um, so yeah, that's been definitely a, a, a cool part of it as well to be able to be part of that part of a race team that is part of work. So it's not always, I don't know. It's not always racing. It's sometimes work and work is not always work. It's sometimes racing. That was one of the things, um, and nobody at Toyota should be uh, offended by this story that I'm going to tell right here, but the, f- first time you guys the first year you showed up at one lap you guys were obviously at work and that contrasts with the fact that like literally everyone else is obviously on vacation and it and it took like a year and a bit to find for you guys to find your groove so that like <laughs> like there was such a contrast initially and now you guys are just like one you know everybody else who's on one lap um i remember the first year it was like dude you guys are at work but you need to relax and you guys figured out how to to not relax but to be at work and still have fun and do all of those things and obviously you guys are an integral part of the show now so um yeah that's been fun so everybody at Twitter, yep. that's a compliment i swear <laughs> yeah, it's a tight rope to walk um, because there's this kind of comes to the managing expectations thing of like, what are the expectations? The expectations that we're going to go and collect the data and have some feedback loop and, and improve the vehicles or is the expectation that we're going to go and we're going to compete and we're going to have fun and we're going to improve team member morale? Is the expectation that go that we're going to go showcase a new vehicle and increase our marketing and sales efforts? Like, what is the expectation? And uh, I think in the beginning, the expectation was 
was that maybe like it was like okay let's go make this serious like we're gonna go on this professional racing not professional but then air quotes it's one lap i don't know it's i don't know they're not quite sanctioned like you said everyone's on vacation on one lap but it, like people are still competitive right but um so yeah i think i think after the team ran a year or two or three and then realized it's like okay you know, here's what we can extract out of the event as far as like team member development or, you know, marketing, that kind of stuff. And then like relaying that messages to, to like our executive sponsors that actually allow us to do what we do and saying, Hey, you know, we might've told you we were going to go do this thing. However, what we see a better benefit is, you know, this other thing instead. Um, and it just allows us to, like you said, just enjoy the event more, but then also extract the most out of the event too. When you go racing and you're stressed, you're not having fun. You're, you know, you're, I don't know. You're not in, you're not in it in the right mindset. Right. And you hear experienced people talk about that. It's like, if you're out there and you're losing your mind on the track, then get off the track. It was that type of thing. I feel like where it was like, okay, we need to reset our expectations to get, get something more, get something better out of this event than what we were originally anticipating. Yeah. The, f- the first time I ever talked to you, like had a conversation with you was we were under the bleachers we were hiding from the sun at a track and somebody made a comment about an R63 and you turned around and you're like, dude, there's this guy on the internet. And I just hung my head and you mm-hmm. were like, oh, you're the guy on the internet. And then we started talking and we've talked like ever since then. And I felt like with the whole team, it was like, we just needed a crack. Like we needed one tiny little thing, one relatable incident. And then everybody on your team is awesome. And it's just been normally because everybody else is on vacation. Like it's really easy to, it's a lot easier to find those, those commonalities to start those friendships with. And since you guys were always so good at like being serious is not the right word, but you were so good at doing what you were doing that it was in contrast to everybody else. But individually, I've watched the team members that have shown up year after year, like, like find those commonalities and then build those friendships. Um, and it's been really neat to watch those friendships develop and and have the team really integrate itself with, with one lap. Right. Yep. Yeah. Going back to that, I remember like I left that and I like text my buddies. I was like, Hey, like, remember that guy on the internet we were reading? I was like, I just met him. I was like, I met an internet celebrity. <laughs> he that is really weird. Funny. Yeah, he's I, as weird as he seems. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about, and this probably came with having kids a couple of years ago. I was like, I'm passionate about getting new people exposed to this cool, fun, crazy thing that we do. Um, but then making sure it's done in the right way and that like they're going to have a good time and that they're going to fit in with, you know, the, the, the fit and feel and vibe of the event as well. And, and not, I don't know, add any extra stress or anything, you know? So, but yeah, it's, uh, we do try to bring a couple new members every year. Uh, this year we had, we had several with us too. So it's always cool to get them exposed to, you know, what one lap is and, and the different characters, you and Scott, everyone else too. Well, it's always very apparent with your team who the new people are because they're very standoffish and like wide-eyed and what is happening here. Like, I, I don't know where to go sort of thing. Um, what, how many times have you guys being the Toyota PE team won the spirit award? This, this most recent year, this 2022 was our second time winning it. Um, we had won it in 20, would have been 2019. Yes. 2019. Yeah. Um, 
that year I do, I do remember helping a few people on the side of the road. One very specifically was Charles and Susan Lovelady, um, kept launching a belt on their Corvette. Um, and then 20, 2020 went to Brian, no, 2020, we skipped from COVID 2021 went to Brian to freeze. Yeah. Helping, uh, Howard in Texas. And then oh, we, yeah. we also, so no, that went up. to Howard yeah. for helping Brian. Yeah, it was Howard, Howard for helping Brian. Brian. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, they had yep. to, to get that wheel bearing done. But that award, when we won that award in 2019, the Sportsmanship Award, that meant that resonated more with our team management than a lot of the, or, you know, than all of the first, second, third place awards. That was like, okay, cool. Like you guys are having an impact, you know, on the event and and what the spirit of racing is and the spirit of competition and, and the spirit of one lap and all that. Uh, so that was, that will always help someone. It's by no means like why we do things just to go win that award. But, um, and it's definitely not something that we like set on our list of things that we go out to accomplish. But, um, I, I, by nature just love helping people and the whole team does as well. Well, and I think what it seems like looking at the team from the outside is you guys are well prepared. I mean, you have a lot of tools you've got a lot of spares um you're all engineers mechanics like between the 12 or 14 of you however many of you there are um like you guys can descend on a problem and take care of us i mean it's yeah it, it it almost seems like the cars that you guys are working on like as long as the problems are like known problems like you guys can take care of that it takes like half a brain you guys are good but it's like when it comes to somebody else's problems that that to me like looking at you guys that's like a fun challenge all of a sudden it's like here's a car i've never worked on or never really looked at they're having this problem yeah like that's that's that that seems to be kind of what lights your guys's fire yes definitely and yeah we are all a group of engineers but largely have you know automotive hobbies too then we all come from different backgrounds whether it's like muscle cars and ls engines or import cars with you know boosted four cylinders or you know whatever it might be um or like my background with being in motorsports i haven't turned too many wrenches on street cars but i've worked on a lot of race cars so um yeah tons of different backgrounds and then um I don't know, just the problem solving ability, like engineers kind of are, are naturally think that way. And then are, are kind of taught that too in college, like, you know, how to look at a problem and, and get down to like root cause, you know, root cause analysis, figure out what the main issue is and then build back from there. Uh, um, but also too, like I, I don't know, there's a lot of like, okay, this has happened, like factual, like this has happened. What can we do? Sure. Like how, how do we go forward from here? It's like, okay, it's like now like limits is great for that. Right. Like, okay. The, the engine is in, is running in the car is in first gear and we're not moving. It's like, okay, what do we do from here? Like, do we pack it up and go home? No, of course not. Let's rip the transmission out and see what's going on or whatever. Um, but yeah, just, I don't know. And wanting everyone to finish, like no one wants to be stranded. Uh, we kind of had that, the, the, I don't know, the yeah. best example of that was on gateway, one that Seth remembers very oh, yeah. distinctly too. Yeah. <laughs> Only so we, because we, primarily because like nobody will let we, him forget about No, no, way. that's the thing is but but in reference to me like I just I kissed the wall. 
And yes, with the bumper hanging off. Yeah, yeah. So I yeah. kissed the wall. You guys, de- <laughs> you guys definitely yeah. snuggled up to the wall way harder than I did. Yeah. But so, and tire walls suck too. Like tire yeah. walls soften the blow, so mechanical things get saved, but cosmetic things do not get saved at all. <laughs> no. in a tire wall. Um, and so, yeah, we had that in twenty. That must have been in twenty eighteen. Eighteen. Yeah. yeah. That was that was my first like road course event on the one lap was that one when you guys come in like with the entire driver side, no pass driver side driver, driver side, side. Yeah. just beat to hell and I'm like, what the hell did I get myself into? <laughs> and you guys Great. weren't the only ones that day. Like we had several cars hit the wall there. That was definitely a brutal track track day for sure. Um, but yeah, that one was like okay, this has happened now. Like the drag event was getting started and it was like, okay, like quickly check over the car. Like things are looking good. Nothing's leaking. Uh, steering wheel is out of alignment. Put some plates on it really quick. It's like, okay, good enough for drag strip. And it was like, all right, start the car. Car will start. It's like, oh, it's like, all right, now what do we look at? It's like, but I don't think, I don't think we ever didn't start one of those events. And I think the only event we didn't complete was the one that the car crashed in. So the car mm-hmm. ran bracket and low ET um, which is immediately after the, the gateway incident that the yeah. car had on track. Um, but then like bracket, we all agreed. It was like, all right, like go out there first pass and just like be done so we can go finish working on the car. So, but then we went to Hallett. I remember like when we pulled back into Hallett, I was like, oh yeah, I was like bringing back memories because we pulled into Hallett the next day. And uh, I remember asking one of the other, one of the other people on the team, it was like, all right, it's like, are we going 60%? Like, are we going to go feel this thing out? He's like, nah, he's like hundred percent. It's like, go see what it's got. And we ran the whole rest of that week yeah, at that was, point, right? What do you got to fine. lose? We ran the whole rest of that week, like just pushing that car to 100% and it loved it. And uh, we actually saw a good, I don't know, we had a good week out of it. Definitely like some stories too, but then also not terrible results. I think we were somewhere in the 20s with that car. So yeah, yeah you guys didn't do, did not do poorly in that thing. But yeah, like points salvaging. I always get frustrated watching like F1 and it's like something small happens and they're like, oh, retire the car. It's like, no, like, yeah, I go, like, get some tools. Let's go, like, salvage some points. So, okay, I'm I'm glad you brought this up because this drives me absolutely nuts. Like, uh, first race of the season, I think it was Carlos Sainz gets beached and they pull his car and it was just assumed like he's done. And I'm like, why? Put the car back on the track. Like, take it into pits, dig all the gravel out, and, like, I don't Let's know. Let's go. Go drive. Like, okay, so he's a couple laps down. You're going to cry about it because you're not in the points? Like, just, are you here to race, or are you here to, like, have everything go perfectly? It drives me, right. th- like, there's F1, and then there's, like, one lap or, like, even endurance racing. Like, if something happens in endurance racing, like, bring it back in, like, We'll take right. the transmission out in five minutes. <laughs> Get it fixed. I okay. Anyway, I was so rant. proud watching the the Indianapolis Grand Prix. The Indy Grand Prix was this past weekend at the Speedway, uh, and Joseph Newgarden had an issue and had like two flat rear tires. I really thought there was more damage than that, but they like put the car on a flatbed and hauled it back. I was like, okay, like you know, that's his race. And then like three minutes later, they pan to the camera on him and it, he was getting back into the car. I was like, yes, like cool. Cause IndyCar was a lot of that too. Or like they would brush the wall and it was like, oh, we, we got to be done now. But it seems like they've made those cars a little tougher. Obviously like the Nashville IndyCar race, road race, road car, road, road course, street course from last year with that car. Like, I don't remember who it was now, but like the guy was airborne on the 
beginning of the race and ended up winning the race. It's like, how, how many cars do you know that can do that can go airborne and then still end up winning the race? So still getting better about that too. But yeah, I was, I don't know, point salvaging. Cause that was big when we were points racing with my family doing midgets and sprint cars. It's like you get dumped by someone, like they spin you out on the track, you go to the back. It's like a lot of people would just pull in. It's like, no, get back in the tail. Like you can salvage a top 10 sometimes or top 15, but still be in the points, like get as many points as you can. And you can still like use that as a learning opportunity again, like from your engineer brain, it's like you can still learn stuff even if you're not like racing for results. Right. Or use that time. Like you're running at the back of the pack, like use that time to like hone your driving skills and learning, you know, other drivers or new lines or whatever, new ways to pass or set someone up. Yeah. I won't say that I, I hope for something like that because of the stress that it would inevitably put on Becky, but it's like, if something like easy were to come up with the Miata and I say easy because I'm, I'm tired of fixing big things that aren't easy on the Miata, but it's like if something on track were to happen where I could just like pull in, like make the briefest of pit stops and go back out, like you better believe I would do that. I was just trying to think back to like your Memphis where you had your hub, you know, your, your hub issue in the bearing. And it's like, you guys recovered from that extremely well. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, that's why you bring spares. <laughs> yes. And I love the, the network of one lap. Like, oh, uh, God. Jenna's, yeah. Jenna's Volkswagen had an issue in Nashville and it was like, Josh, Josh passed, passed off the He's like, do you know anyone in Nashville? I was like, no, but I know a guy that knows a guy. I was like, let me call him. It's like, all of a sudden there's like no issues with just calling random people to ask for parts. And before I know it, like my phone was ringing too. And it was like, oh, I know a guy too. He's like, let me, let me find a part and get back to you. So I know. And same with me. Like when I found out, they were having problems. <laughs> I immediately got on the phone and was like messaging people in the area and people who knew people and all this stuff. And it's like <laughs> all of a sudden the internet, like you see the the little like lightning strikes from this one center location, like trying to strike out and figure out this problem. Yeah. I wish we had pictures of uh, you guys fixing that hose coupling. That I, I need to message her to see if I could like get that part because that was, I think one of the best field fixes that we've, we've ever done for sure. So to, so to set the stage, there is a, there's a hose that comes off the turbo and it, it Bo- has this, this specific coupling, right? And it's crimped onto the end of the hose on as the a boost ins- hose. on the inside and the outside. Like and the inside and the outside, the it's got some bizarre... it's this super German thing and <laughs> And the rubber hose part just blew out of it and the two pieces fell apart. And I went over and I looked at it and I was like, yep, there's your problem. It's broken. <laughs> and, and they were like, yeah, it fits together like this. I was like, well, I can see that, but it's definitely broken. And by the, and you walked over there and tell me what, <laughs> cause you're like, technically I have an engineering degree, but I did not think about it the way you thought about it. What were you seeing when you looked at it? Um, I can't say the things I want to say, but <laughs> design-wise, there's other ways to make things better. Um, okay. But okay. I, I kind of asked Josh. I was like, "Hey, I was like, I think like if we do these things, we can maybe achieve some result." And Josh was like, "Uh, he's like, it's completely useless to me at this point." He's like, "Do what you want." I was like, "Okay, like as long as you're fully fine with me writing this thing off." Uh, but basically, like, yeah, there's two very thin aluminum pieces, like one that goes on the outside, one that goes on the inside. The inside one is like crimped outwards 
kind of like staking the two together, but just squeezing the rubber hose in that process. Um, so using a jack handle and uh, some of the safety fence stuff that was sitting in that garage, we could beat the, the inside part that was crimped outwards. We could beat the crimping back in. Um, but that in itself wasn't enough to like get the inside back in. Uh, what ended up like working as simple as it was, is just like, using a razor blade to like cut some lead in on the rubber hose. And once we did that, it like slid together and Josh was like, Whoa, he's like, stop, stop. I was like, no, I was like, I was like, I want to pull it apart and like get it. Heck lined up. He's like, do not pull it apart. It's like, okay. It's like, I guess we'll go from here. <laughs> like, and it happened to be lined up. Like it had to be clocked right on the hose as well to add that like difficulty to it. And, uh, so then we had to recrimp it and this was the fun part. Like I knew we could get it uncrimped and probably back together, but then it was like, all right, how do we get it like recrimped now strong enough to hold? Cause they probably used some crazy hydraulic machine with some fingers, right. In a controlled environment with several tons of pressure and they could just easily hit a button and it crimps it. It's like, okay, we don't have that. Like, what do we do? So, um, we ended up using a trailer, like the Jack from someone's trailer, tiny little one lap trailer it had like an extra like an inch and a half of thread sticking out the back side of it and it happened to like fit in the hose perfect that we could like stick the hose on that threaded bolt essentially um and then whack the outside of it but so then we whacked the outside of it used like a wood block and, and hit it once or twice and then realized it was like deforming the it was taking the circularity out of it we had to modify the end of the wood block so it kind of like cushioned it a little more and just andrew and i the the guy running the Supra this year was just uh, like, I would get it all lined up. I was like, whack it. He would smash the thing with a hammer and the trailer would bounce and like check it. I was like, okay, it looks good. Like rotate it 30 degrees and try it again. Yeah. You know? I, I love the answer to the problem was whack it with a hammer. <laughs> and I, as I told him, I said, don't hold back. Cause like getting the thing lined up, yeah. the lock held like, Oh, that was difficult. And I was like, it's like harder. Like you got to hit this thing hard because yeah. we're, we don't get many hits at this, like yeah. make it count. That's, that's oh. absolutely not what you said to him, but yes, that's, <laughs> that's the idea. <laughs> yes. But yeah, it held, to, I don't know, they, they, Josh turned the boost down. They ran like 16 pounds instead of the normal higher pressure and they made it to uh, Knoxville where they could get another part and then met us the rest of the trip. So that was cool. Yeah. That was a good one for sure. Yeah. I think the, the best feel good one was certainly the, the last <laughs> Oh yeah. The last car at Putnam in one of the last it was in it was in the Sunday Cup run group actually. No, no, no. No, no. It they were the running historic. Yep. And you know, the Toyota Corolla, which is kind of meaningful and symbolic on, on some levels, like just snapped an axle, uh trying to launch at the start finish. And so they pushed it back and I know Ash and some of them were starting and so Becky and all the Sunday cup cars kind of come back in and we're packing up and I just l- happened to look over and after it's pushed in, like the 14 of you have this thing like jacked up wheels off, yanking an axle out and you showed me the method of failure and it still baffles my mind how that actually broke like that. It's kind yeah. of creepy, but and sure enough, like they had a deadline, you had to be on track by this point, um, which is always like that's Brock stuff. It's like I paid for you guys up till this point. They make it back on track, and before then, cool, let them run. If not, well, it's not my car. <laughs> so, you know. Yep. So I don't. 
yeah, I don't remember which one of them it was, but he, whoever was not driving had like walked by as we were like packing our car and getting ready to head to South Bend. And he's like, Hey, he's like, uh, I think the car just broke an axle. He's like, I wouldn't mind, you know, a little bit of help, you know, getting the thing out. I was like, okay, no problem. Like, so I'm just finished packing in the car and look over and, and like you said, they, they had like already had the car jacked up and they had started ripping on it. I was like, when you meant change the axle, you mean like now and go run. And he's like, yeah. And I was like, okay, yeah. like, here we go. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, uh, and automatically, like you talk about the engineer mindset, like to me, automatically you have to like define the parameters. Like these are our limitations in this. So there's a time parameter. <laughs> um, okay. We've got an extra part. Okay. Let's can yep. we, I, how did you guys actually get the broken part out of the transmission? That was my question. I, so that was one of them knew that you could, it must've been like one of the last years for not having a bar across the diff right there, oh, you just uh, but knew that you could basically drive side. it through from the other side. Yep. Jesus. And um, so it's a combination of their knowledge, but then also I spent many years working in transmissions. So I knew how the axles were in there and what the inner workings were like and what the seals were and how, like the delicacy needed around some of that stuff and like the alignment that had to happen and the, the prying them out, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. Uh, so I, yeah, I could fit really well in that situation because I had experience like women's experience with transmissions and axles and then also like engineering experience too with transmissions, front wheel drive transmissions. So, um, yeah, they, they, because like, <laughs> it was funny, like the axle, like the first one came out and I looked back in the hole and like the spring for the seal was half popped out. I was like, oh man, I was like, I'm going to try to get this back in there. He's like, no, he's like, rip it out. He's like, I got another seal. And I was like, who carries spare seals with them on one lap? Like, especially for this, I guess they knew, right? Well, you saw what was on their trailer. I mean, they came prepared for this thing to fall apart. Yeah. And I think that was a lot of Murphy's law, like buying some, buying some good faith. There's like, we're going to bring the engine and then we're not going to need it. Cause if we don't bring the engine, then we're going to need it. Yeah. yeah, So we, yeah. Ripped the axle on it and it sheared between like the drive splines and the basically the bearing surface in the diff um so like really far inboard so the axle came out easy and then we had to punch the spline part out too that was left inside so in order to do that i had to take the axle out of the right hand side also in order to punch the bad part of the left hand side out and uh basically like reassemble the right hand side put new seals in both because both this we ended up losing both springs out of both the seals which kind of sucked but um yeah and then ended up getting that back in and uh there was some form of crash bolts in the knuckles so we weren't sure like how they had set the knuckles to so we got lucky on that because we 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 sent the car like yeah. not knowing what tow was it was like well worst case scenario it's a little bit towed in so at least it's not gonna be super unstable and it went around there a couple laps oh that was the funny part too is not lining up with the hot, line right hot mess they were they were very patient about that which is good yeah and then uh yeah we we checked the toe just before leaving to South Bend and that was good too, which those guys, he sent me a message not long. Like we left South Bend on Saturday and he sent me a message on Sunday. So they made it home. And I was like, well, that's a relief. Like axles are good. No seals are blown out. Cause like yeah. when you do those field fixes, you're never confident that everything's a hundred percent perfect. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you're under a timeline and, and then those guys ended up winning all remaining cars. That's, the, was that's awesome. the amazing thing is that they, they popped the axle like as they were starting to launch to go out for their outlap. So they hadn't been on the track surface. Like two because normally, Yeah, normally Brock's rules are like, if you get on the track surface, that's it. Like that's your session. 
and and you know you're you're done and the fact that they broke it there instead of on their launch for their lap was literally the thing that made it so that they could do this heroic fix so they could get their sessions so they could have completed all the sessions so that they could win all remaining cars yeah, like it seems like they just, owe you some safety gear um that they're going to be getting gifted no. <laughs> No one owes me anything. I do this because I enjoy it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. I was going to find who was going to win all remaining cars if it wasn't for them. Oh, uh, if it would have been if it would have been Tim again. No, he was. A, they ended up. Uh, he had a stellar performance on the skid pad. Um, so he ended up a couple. The winged grandpas. Yeah, I think they were. That's right. Yep. Yeah, the the red Mustang. The red Mustang. Um, yeah, we had uh, margar—I had margarita jokes going with them throughout the entire week. Uh, became a thing, anyway. Um, but yeah, you guys won the uh, Spirit of the uh, Event Award again, and it's just well deserved. Yeah, just, super cool trophies from Adam Hennessy too. I need to—I didn't catch the story that Brock told about this one, but it's a connecting connecting rod of some sort with some gears on it. I need to message Adam and see what. Oh, it's it a top from. fuel car, I believe. I thought so, yeah, but it didn't yeah. look like the ones that I recognize because you, you, I've, I've got them all over here. No, it's it, it's older. That it would have predated your like yeah. predated by a long time. Yours, I think this was like an '80s top fuel car. Right. So this okay. was an old car that somebody had stacks of rods from from back in the day. Still stacks of rods laying around. Yep. <laughs> Have we made a show, Scott? Yeah. I mean, I was going to kind of get into his comment really early that he doesn't like the spotlight and he's much more comfortable kind of behind things and wrenching. Um, he's so much at the front of the Toyota PE team. Well, and but that's the thing. Like, he's... <laughs> like, you're... I assume you're an introvert. Is this right? No, not really. It's okay. probably complex. It's complicated. I, I don't think that's true. Um, I think you like you you like being around people for sure. Yes, but you're also an engineer, and like your brain is a very comfortable place for you to just like hang out and. Oh yeah, for some period yeah. of time. Yeah i I don't really have a, a place to go other than like I just find it interesting that you like that you kind of started as a driver, you went to be a mechanic and then you went almost even farther back to like engineering. So like you design the things that get worked on that then get driven. So like you kept like stepping back in all of this only to find yourself in the one lap, like driving cool cars. Has that helped? Yeah. Has, has that helped you? be a better engineer and a better like kind of doing the full circle thing, like coming back to the driving. Yeah. I, it's funny. You make me think that because I, I knew like the, the mechanicing side makes you a better engineer. Like when you work with your hands sure. and, and learn to dislike other people's designs, it makes your designs better. But I never thought about that from a driving standpoint. Like, are there things that you're, as an engineer that you're learning when behind the wheel that maybe one thing I struggle with is like teaching. I don't know. I feel like I struggle with teaching, but I, I enjoy teaching to a sense, but I, for some reason don't enjoy like driver coaching type stuff. Um, 
but I think too, like as you get better at something, as you learn it yourself, then you then have to like be able to describe it and learn it. And that might be what yeah. driving does help teach you is like, like, okay, I'm, I'm doing things like, why did I choose to turn the wheel then? Or why did I choose to brake and then turn or turn and then brake those types of things. And then, then you can teach someone else how to do it. So that might be where driving comes in. But I mean, it definitely, I think every, all life experiences help in everything. And I, I think that too, with like networks of people, like I'm always kind and friendly to everyone because I don't know when I might need them down the road. Sure. I don't know who, who they are. I don't know, you know, if, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what they are. And I'm always curious to learn about people too. Um, but you never know like when something in life, life has ways of working like that when something is life in life is going to come back around. So I think that was maybe, I don't know, driving versus engineering. It's like, there's always something to gain from something. Yeah. So if, if I like chart the, the path that your life has set, you drive, then you mechanic, then you engineer. And I think the next step is then you teach engineers, which is like the next step. I don't want to say like removed, but like to me is like the next step out or it's, like yeah. design it. or something. But yeah, it's like, I, I yeah. think that's next for you. <laughs> so I, my day-to-day job is a lot of teaching. Um, so I, I do get to teach engineers engineering things, which is cool. And I do enjoy it. Um, but also too, like I am just kind of biding my time until my kids are old enough to get into something that can start brapping. So, yeah. um, I've got, uh, we've got a four wheeler and a Wee 50 that they go cruise around in the yard in. and, uh, I've got a dirt cart lined up for myself because cart carts are great because they span all ages. So I need a kid's cart as well. And then, uh, but yeah, I'm kind of like living out the last of my years till I can start <laughs> teaching my kids. So, um, well, if you talk to Seth, he'll tell you we about do. the Lord and Savior kids dirt brakes. We, yes. we have actually had that conversation because Kirk has his own history of uh, silly pit bikes and and that which we could probably talk about for half an hour at least. I don't know if it's history, if it's still current time. <laughs> I still have four pit bikes. That was yeah, the, can you can you ever outgrow pit bikes? I don't no. think so. Well, where can, if you want them to, where do you, where can people find you, get to know you? I, yeah, uh, Facebook is pretty much the only way I do have an Instagram, but I, I need to do a better job. And I always, this is maybe the introvert part that you think I am. It's like, I don't have a much of a social media presence, but, um, I, I don't know. I love like, I love people when like when they call me or when they just show up and like, and then I'll be super talkative and have a presence but like if i have to send a message to someone or i don't know make a post like that's not my thing but um i'm definitely open to uh more racing people on facebook i just enjoy i don't know i enjoy the community and following on people's like what they do and stuff but um yeah i don't know search me out anybody any oh yeah Uh, i'll i'll post uh i'll post a link in the in the show notes Expect is, friend requests to just flow in constantly. Random ones, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just listed a, I listed a car for sale, and I guess because I listed it on like some car specific pages that like people are like, oh, we should be friends because we like the same cars. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't, I don't, I won't go that far. Hundred percent, that's what happens. Um, anybody you need to say hi to, say thanks for plug. I, t- 
talked about family and wife enough for sure. But, um, and she, she's got her own motorsport stuff that she does. Too. I was going to say we could do, I, I desperately want to meet her and do an entire show with her because yes. the, the stuff that you've told me about, I'm like, yes. We yes. need to talk about this. If we, yeah, I try to surround myself with some, for sure. Well, I say that, but like my mother's, I, I don't surround myself with her. She's in my life too, but very strong, powerful women. Like I love women in powerful, you know, positions and roles and, and in motorsports too is awesome to see. Um, but yeah, so like definitely my, my parents for, you know, always giving us that chance to do it. And uh, they spent a lot of money and a lot of effort and a lot of time when my brother and I were growing up. And, uh, you know, led me into engineering and a great career doing this stuff and still getting to turn wrenches and that. And, uh, there was an old guy that got me a couple of old people that got in, got me into engineering too. And, and one of them, Bob Dalton, uh, runs a machine shop out in California and also has a, uh, a, a streamliner, uh, that runs, yeah, 400 miles an hour. And, uh, I would just go like after high school and spend time in his shop when I, I lived down in California for a couple of years and, um, you know, just, just that chance to just go sit and absorb some of that stuff from those people too. So, um, and that's, you know, it's a lesson for us too, as we get older, right. That we need to do the same thing that those people offered for us, you know, when we were kids. So, um, you know, don't, if there's a kid down the street that loves what you do, you know, open your door to him, open your garage to him, let you, let him just sit there and ask questions or, you know, piddle around your race cars you're working on it. So fuel the next generation of young racers and engineers. For sure. Um, we are at Track Walking Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Track Walking Chats is the Facebook group if you want to come talk and hang out and basically basically post PT cruisers uh, to annoy me uh, is basically what it's become. Yeah, it's awesome. Like the PT limo that just got posted. <laughs> it didn't suck. Are you guys uh, coming out to Midwest Fest? Do you know yet? We are, yes, we will have some members there. And I'm currently discussing with my wife on whether we're going to bring the motorhome up or not. You should. You really you should. should. I yes. I think it would be good. I think so. so. I think so. Good. Well, for the three of us, I'm Scott. And I'm Seth. And I'm Kirk. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.